0: Let's pray together. Jesus, would you indeed speak this morning and give us ears to hear and wills to obey? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. Last Sunday, for the Feast of Epiphany, we marked three Gentile kings coming from the east traveling to worship and give gifts to God incarnate. Today, and next week, as we continue to travel through this season of Epiphany Tide, we're going to be looking at how God himself gives gift to us. Today, we're giving our attention to the New Testament lesson for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Before we look at that passage, what I'd like to do is to give a little bit of context ...about this overall book and what the Apostle Paul is writing there to us. As you start to read through the letter of 1 Corinthians... ...and maybe you've sat down and you've read it through start to finish... ...I encourage that kind of reading of scripture. It helps you to get the entire context for what's being said. If you were to do that and you start at the beginning of the letter... ...what you would first notice about this church in Corinth... ...is that it has a ton of raw potential. A ton of potential. Potential. It was probably a very exciting congregation to be a part of, never a dull moment. Listen to uh, how Paul opens up chapter one. He says in verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you all are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's been really good to this church. Paul Paul doesn't say to every church that he writes to the things that he said here about the church in Corinth. But the next thing you'll notice as you read this letter is how incredibly messed up this church is. It's jacked up. They're dealing with conflict and cults of personality And hubris and oppressive power dynamics and incest and all other kinds of sexual immorality. They're dealing with lawsuits in the church and divorce and idolatry and individualism and a lack of submission to authority and so on and so forth. Now how is it that a congregation full of so much spiritual potential can yet be so stinking worldly? How does that work? All of these problems have led the church in Corinth to be deeply divided. This is perhaps the biggest reason why Paul writes this letter. To convince them that genuine spirituality and discipleship to Jesus does not produce a contentious church culture, but one of love and unity. Without exception. He says in verse 10 uh, uh, 10 of chapter 1, I appeal to you, my brothers and my sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now today, we're going to be looking at, at chapter 12, so 12 chapters later, and it's a passage about spiritual gifts. But if we think that that some other topic that, that doesn't relate to the central theme of divisions and unity, if we think that spiritual gifts doesn't have anything to do with those things, we're mistaken. As we're going to see today and next week as we cover chapter 12, verses 12 to 21, Paul locates the entire discussion of spiritual gifts within the larger context of the unity of the church and the witness of the gospel there in the city of Corinth. In addition, from what I read just a few moments ago from verse 7, we heard Paul say that the Corinthians were not lacking in any gift. That's not something he says about other churches, and I think he meant that. They weren't lacking in any gift from God's Spirit. Meaning God was not stingy with the amount of grace and spiritual power that he saw fit to give to the Corinthians. And yet, they were so dysfunctional. And they were so childish. And so it's in part from this letter that we learn that an abundance of spiritual gifts is by no means the same as spiritual maturity. Did you catch that? An abundance of spiritual gifts is by no means the same thing as spiritual maturity. We're going to read this passage again uh, this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 to 11. Let me encourage you to turn there in your Bibles and to follow along as we go. You're going to need the text in front of you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. Paul says, "Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans you were led astray to mute idols; however, you were led To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. In four years, this is actually the first sermon that I'll be giving on the topic of spiritual gifts as a whole. And so what I want to do today is to provide a core theology of spiritual gifts, which we're going to build upon next week as we finish chapter 12 in this discussion of spiritual gifts. Here and now for today, I want to ask five main questions about spiritual gifts and then distill what Paul teaches in this passage we might think that the, the obvious question with which to start is, what are spiritual gifts? What do we even mean when we say spiritual gifts? But actually, we can't start with that kind of question. Instead, we have to first ask, where do spiritual gifts come from? Where do they come from? You see, we can't talk intelligibly about the nature of spiritual gifts without first describing the source of spiritual gifts. So, the first question where do spiritual gifts come from? Paul makes it very clear in this passage that the Holy Spirit is the source of each and every spiritual gift. In fact, the Spirit is not just where the, the gifts come from, he also says that the Spirit is the ongoing power required for the gifts to be used. So, the Spirit is both the provider. And the sustainer of the gifts. Now to understand this a bit more, we need to talk about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We spent a great deal of time in the book of Acts last year. And so we remember that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which I referenced almost every Sunday for six months. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise at Jesus' ascension. And then 10 days later, Acts chapter 2 tells us, the disciples were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, when all of a sudden, Jesus' promise was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit fell upon them and filled them with the very power that Jesus said was coming. Now this was something new. We can all see that. This hadn't happened before. Now, God's Spirit had always been around. Read through the Old Testament. You'll see God's Spirit show up. But in the Old Testament, there seemed to be just specific individuals who were filled with God's Spirit and empowered for specific moments, specific times. But Pentecost brought something different. Here, God's Spirit was filling all believers, not just for specific moments, but for all time. All believers for all time. And so the apostles are having to grapple with in real time how the Holy Spirit was operating in the church in a new way. And that theology began to unfold in the years and the decades that would follow as they watched the Holy Spirit do things that they'd never seen the Holy Spirit do. What are these gifts? What were they? What were they for? How were they to be used? And so on and so forth. These are the questions the apostles are no doubt asking Now, when we're talking about spiritual gifts, it's clear that we're talking about the plural, spiritual gifts. There are a variety of spiritual gifts, as Paul says over and over again here. However, while that term, spiritual gifts, may be plural, what is also clear from this passage is that the Spirit of God is singular. Right? There there, there aren't a variety of different spirits who supply their corresponding spiritual gifts. No. There's one and the same spirit. We'll see Paul emphasize this over and over again. Just watch these words. He says in verse 4, the same spirit. In verse 5, the same Lord. In verse 6, the same God. In verse 8, the same spirit. In verse 9, the same spirit. In verse 9, one spirit. In verse 11, one and the same spirit. That's just 11 verses, and I think we're getting the idea. So, We've identified that that spiritual gifts come from God's Spirit alone and are empowered by God's Spirit alone. So, what are they? What are spiritual gifts? I want to just first break down what we've just called them spiritual gifts. What is spiritual? What is that? It means from the Spirit, pertaining to the spiritual reality. So, what does gift mean? Means something freely given and freely received. So these spiritual gifts are, are things given freely from the Spirit and received by us, which pertain to the spiritual reality in which we participate. Paul gives something close to a definition in verse 7 where he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. There's that word again. We heard about manifestation. Last week, we're going to hear it again this week, Paul is saying spiritual gifts are a manifestation, an appearing of God's Spirit in our lives. Now prior to that verse, verse 7, in verses 4 to 6, Paul also lists a few other ways to describe spiritual gifts. He's trying to fill out an understanding of what these things are. He says there are varieties of gifts. That's the Greek word, Charisma. Sometimes you might hear someone talk about the charism that God has gifted them with. Next, he says there are varieties of service. That's the Greek word diakonia. It's the word from which we get the order of deacon, servant. Finally, Paul says there are varieties of activities. That's the Greek word energema, from which we get the word energy. There are varieties of energies. Now, in addition to providing some of these synonymous terminology for spiritual gifts, Paul also emphasizes the diversity that exists among them, right? There are varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. And then he goes on in in verses 8 to 10 to list some examples of the things that he's talking about. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, Miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Now you're probably aware that there are other places in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are listed like this. For example, even at the end of chapter 12, Paul gives another list. He says there are apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. In Romans, Paul mentions prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. Paul also talks about spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, and and Peter does so in 1 Peter 4. So all this to say, uh, when we look at verses 8 to 10 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're not seeing an exhaustive list. We're seeing some examples of the things that were present in Corinth. Corinth. But with the gifts that that are listed here, I want to offer some brief descriptions that's needed for today. The gift of wisdom, which Paul mentions, has to do with speaking wisely into complex and confusing situations. The gift of knowledge is similar and has to do with, with imparting knowledge into situations that require a deeper understanding that just isn't readily available to most people. The gift of faith that has to do with trusting God to do and to accomplish things that seem futile to the people around you. The gift of healing has to do with praying for and imparting healing to a person in mind and body and in spirit. The gift of miracles is is quite broad and it has to do with bringing about miraculous deeds or circumstances. The gift of prophecy has to do with speaking prophetic truth, which God himself brings to one's mind. The gift of discernment, which is called here the ability to distinguish between spirits, has to do with being able to see the sometimes subtle differences between the spirit's work and Satan's. The gift of tongues has to do with speaking and praying in a language which is unknown to the person speaking. Most likely a human language, but sometimes an unintelligible one. The gift of interpretation has to do with translating that unintelligible word so that it can be understood by those around and the person who prayed the tongue. Now this morning, I'm not going to give any further explanation of what these spiritual gifts are because Paul doesn't spend his time here explaining what they are either. Instead, I want to give our attention to the details that Paul is keen to share. However, if you'd like to go deeper, if this is a topic that you really like to, to dig into, I do have a couple of recommendations for you. Just reach out to me. I've got some things I'd like to, to share with you later on. Question number three. Who gets spiritual gifts? Who gets them? There are two things I'd like to say here. The first is an only, and the second is an all. So, first, only believers get spiritual gifts. If spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit, then only those who have been born of the Spirit through faith and baptism will receive them. How could anyone else receive them if they haven't been born of the Spirit? The second thing is that all believers get spiritual gifts. So, only believers get spiritual gifts, but all believers get spiritual gifts. In fact, in the four passages in the New Testament in which lists of spiritual gifts are given, in all four of those places, there is always a corresponding statement of how every believer receives gifts from God. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this in verse 7. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To whom? To each. To each. No one's left out. In our passage for next week, in verse 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So were you baptized? If so, you have a spiritual gift. End of story. Every believer receives spiritual gifts as part of their new spiritual life in Christ. One additional point should be made about who receives spiritual gifts. And that is this. While every believer receives spiritual gifts, no believer receives all of them or even most of them. And that is by God's design. And we're going to talk about that some more next week. The fourth question is this. What determines the kind and the measure of the spiritual gifts that you receive? What determines the kind and the measure of the spiritual gifts that each believer receives? So we've already established that there are a variety of kinds of spiritual gifts. What we haven't established is that there are also different measures of the gifts that are given. Meaning, two believers might have the same spiritual gift, but one might have a greater measure of it than the other. They might be more gifted. So who determines that? Who determines what kind of gift you receive and how much of it? For this question, we've got to look again straight to this passage, verse 11. Paul says, All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That word for apportion, it means distribution, in terms of uh, what is being distributed and also how much of it, the kind and the measure. So Paul is saying it is the Spirit who willfully and purposefully gives spiritual gifts both in the kind and in the measure. Paul says pretty much the same exact thing when he's talking about spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. When he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now the question of why the Spirit gives different kinds and measures of gifts. That's a curious question. Why would he do that? Again, that's something we're going to look at next Sunday I'm not going to steal the thunder out of Paul's next passage. The final question for today is this. Why does the Spirit give spiritual gifts at all? Why does the Spirit give spiritual gifts? What are they for? Again, Paul answers this question in this passage with an explicit statement. He says in verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what? For the common good. For the common good. What's the common good? What is that? It's the good, the the, the benefit of the community. And we know what community Paul's talking about because he says it's the church congregation. Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. So if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual gifts... He's done so, so that he might minister through you for the benefit of the congregation that you belong to. That's plain and simple. Now the question is, what good thing might God want to bring about through your spiritual gifts in the church community? What good thing? The way the New Testament often talks about this is with the word edification. Edification. It means to be built up like an edifice, to be built up like like a house in which uh, the building is brought together and it's crafted into one beautiful and unified whole. So the good that that God's spirit is after is the edification of the church. Listen to what Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 14 when he says, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, since you Corinthians are so eager... For manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church and not building up yourself. Now, to get a bit more specific than edification, there are three main goods that the Holy Spirit desires to build the church up in through spiritual gifts. Here they are. The first good is the maturity of the church. It's the maturity of the church. Spiritual gifts have been given to each and every believer so that each and every believer might grow up into Christian adulthood. This is what we often refer to as formation. We are to be more and more formed into the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second good is the unity of the church. Spiritual gifts are given so to each and every believer so that each and every believer might grow closer in the bonds of peace with the other believers around them. And we're going to see this especially next week. That's, that's the focus, remember. Now, we often just think of, of unity in the church as just the absence of division. The New Testament ideal is more than that. It is actually that we would share in common life together and so demonstrate the lack of divisions in our midst. The third and final good that we find within the Spirit's purpose of edifying the church is the multiplication of the church. Maturity, unity, and multiplication. Spiritual gifts are given to each and every believer so that each and every believer Might participate in the mission of God to redeem human beings and to bring them into the covenant family of faith. And so, altogether, for the church to be edified as the Spirit desires, it means that we will grow up, we'll mature. It means that we'll grow together, we'll be unified. And it means that we'll grow out, we will multiply. Next week, as we look at chapter 12, verses 12 to 27, we're going to be building upon this theology of spiritual gifts. And we'll read about what Paul wants the church to know about how these God-given abilities are to be used and the attitudes, the attitudes that must accompany them. And at the end of that sermon, I'm going to give a number of implications for our lives as believers. I'm saving some of those from today uh, such that they fit with what's happening next week. The way I'd like to end things today for us is just with one truth. With one truth. And here it is. If every believer receives spiritual gifts apportioned by the Spirit, then the Spirit desires for every believer to use them. I'll say it one more time. If every believer receives spiritual gifts apportioned by the Spirit, then the Spirit desires every believer to use them. What I mean here is that with a spiritual gift comes the spiritual responsibility to use what is given. Spiritual responsibility. Now perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind in part when he taught the parable of the talents. We are not to bury the gifts that God has invested in us or to use them. What kind of places, just imagine for a moment, what kind of places might Christian congregations be if every believer in them We're using the spiritual gifts that God had given to them for the maturity and the unity and the multiplication of the church. Do you think those would be compelling places to be a part of? I think so. I think you would not only want to be there, I think the world would want to be there too. If I'm honest, though, I think I've seen more congregations that don't look like this than those that do. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. Many congregations, first of all, are built around the ministry of the clergy and the staff. Such that there just aren't opportunities for each and every believer to use their gifts. This especially happens in church traditions that favor clericalism. That there are two classes of people. Those who minister and those who don't. But this also happens in churches that believe in the priesthood of all believers for a wide variety of reasons. Another reason a congregation might not be a place where everyone uses their gifts is when lay believers simply don't feel a responsibility to use them. They're happy to be consumers and they can't be bothered, just too busy with other things. A third way in which congregations can can fail to look like this is when the congregation views Sunday morning as the only chance to use their gifts, as if an hour and a half could encompass it all. It might be more convenient if that were true, but it's not how it works. The early church met all the time, often daily, And this is why I so strongly emphasize the ministry of small groups here at Living Faith, because Sunday's not enough. It's not enough for you, and it's not enough for those around you to be built up in maturity and in unity and in multiplication. And so in order for all believers to use the gifts of the Spirit for the common good, I think three things are needed. One is the clergy have to want it. And they have to provide as many opportunities as possible. Number two, real responsibility needs to be felt by the laity. That we're not going to bury or neglect our gifts. We're going to use them. And number three, seven days of the week need to be used. Seven days, not one. In the last few weeks... I've spent a great deal of time reflecting on my own pastoral theology, um, reflecting on my own pastoral practice. I've been here four years, and I've wanted to do some really deep reflection and evaluation. And this week, as I prepared this sermon, I've really considered how I'm doing with that first thing. How am I praying for people to grow in their giftings? And how am I cultivating opportunities for them to use those gifts? I'd like to invite you to reflect on those second two things this week. How are you taking responsibility both to discover and to use your spiritual gifts? And how are you willing to use them not only when we gather for worship, but in the other six days not called Sunday? The maturity of the church, the unity of the church the multiplication of the church is dependent upon it by god's design i want to encourage you ask the holy spirit about those things this week ask him if the holy spirit has given you gifts the holy spirit can be reached talk to him ask for insight and ask for creative opportunities to minister. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gifting and the power of your Holy Spirit. As you've given us gifts, so give us grace to use them that your church might grow in maturity in unity and in multiplication, being built up for the glory of your name. Give us ears to hear and wills to obey. In Christ's name we pray.